Welcome to Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today we're talking about Portland animation. There's a documentary out there that profiles six iconic animators who all made their name working in Portland, Oregon. The film is called History, Mystery, and Odyssey. And we have the filmmakers with us today, all the way from London, where it's evening time right now. Martin Cooper, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And you brought with you your collaborator on the film, editor and director of photography, Adrian Story. Hello, Adrian. Hi, thanks. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to see everybody. And on this side of the pond, we have three celebrated award-winning animators, all of whom appear in Martin's film. Rose Bond, Joan Gratz, and Joanna Priestley. Welcome back to Words and Pictures. Hello. Hi. Great to be here. So, Martin, you've been working on documentaries for many, many years, first as an editor at the BBC, among other places. And uh, you and Adrian are now a filmmaking team out of London, England. I'm interested in finding out what attracted you to an animation community on the far left coast of the American continent. <laughs> yeah, well, it started really uh, when I met Joan. In fact, Adrian and I both met Joan at a festival in Hungary in uh, 2018 and I'd taken my first film there as a director which was called Traces of the Soul and it was about calligraphy contemporary calligraphy from around the world and Adrian shot a lot of it particularly the the elements from Japan and so we were there together and Joan had a film at the same festival so we got we hung out with Joan a little bit and reluctantly she showed us a few of her films. She was very coy about it, as I recall. And it was just, yeah, mind-blowingly good. Particularly, it was her clay, clay painting technique. So we saw several of her films. And over a period of time, after the festival, I kept in touch with Joan, and um, she spoke about several of the other animators, all of whom now feature in the film, Rose, Joanna, Shell, Jim, and Zach. And gradually over a period of time, particularly during the lockdown, I mean, I'd already kind of had the idea that I'd like to make a film about these guys, but then the lockdown happened. But um, that allowed me to see more of their work. And I was just uh, super impressed by the variety of techniques, the imagination, you know, and just the overall aesthetic. And so that convinced me that I'd love to make one. So I wrote to everyone and uh, luckily for me, they all agreed. So that was the kind of origin of it. And you and Joan played online chess during the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're still playing, in fact. It was the highlight of the pandemic for me. <laughs> Joan had my play, so she, was, she started from scratch. Yeah, yeah. As the famous animator Jan Pinkava said as an introduction to me, this is Joan Graff. She started playing chess during the pandemic, and now she's a mediocre player. <laughs> <laughs> and let's see, uh, Martin, you uh, you neglected to mention that your film Traces of the Soul won first prize at the Alexander Trauner International Art Film Festival in Hungary. Yeah, it did. It did. It was a surprise. In fact, I went to another festival in Sophia called the Master of Art Film Festival, which was kind of a bigger competition. And I, I, I booked a flight home early because I didn't even think, I just 
didn't have any imagination that he would win anything. So I went home. Luckily, my friend was staying there. And uh, my friend Robin, who had nothing whatsoever to do with the film. I mean, Adrian couldn't make it. But my friend Robin, who had nothing to do with the film whatsoever, he's just there on holiday, effectively. He ended up going onto the stage to collect two awards on behalf of me for that film. So, yeah, it did. It did OK. It did OK. It did quite well, I guess. The English have a reputation for being understated. And that same modesty is true for many Portland animators, including those featured in the documentary. But Portland is a place of serious innovation. Shell White was unable to join us today, but he is responsible for many breakthroughs in animation filmmaking. He was one of the first directors to combine stop motion with digital effects. And he brought tilt-shift technology from photography into film with his technique of small gantics. Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen that in uh, I think was it a music video that he did? I don't know how many of, how much of his work has featured that technique, but uh, yes, Tom York's uh, music right. video, Howard Downhill. Downhill. Yeah, yeah, it's spectacular, wonderful. And Rose, Rose, you're a trailblazer in the field of animation installations. Outdoor projections are all over the place in this digital age, but it was over 20 years ago when you first started lighting up the windows and facades of old buildings. Yeah, it's been a a, a real run. It's kind of um, getting into this, you know, Martin, you talked about the variety person to person here in Portland and, and um, Conch, you just talked about, you know, the serious innovation, but it's an interesting question about why all this innovation, why this variety, why this diversity happens in Portland in a town that's relatively small. So it's been a place for me um, from that early community of whether Blashfield helped me, you know, do something I didn't know how to do technically, like the simplest kind of edit, or whether it's, you know, having a kind of a funding agency around that would uh, take a risk on putting a bunch of projectors inside a building and having people watch from the streets. So yeah, Portland has been um, a really good community and a really uh, exciting place for many years, I think. And everything looks so streamlined on the exterior of those buildings, but inside was this amazing tangle of <laughs> wires and cords and audiovisual equipment. Oh, uh, that's very true. <laughs> yeah. And and that and that's another thing, kind of this intersection um with the commercial world. Like the technology that I was using was really stuff that was used in trade shows. My main guy, Steve, did shows for Nike. So it's kind of like those kind of guys also being open to an artistic vision and letting letting me use some equipment at artist rate. So, yeah. And then you inspired a new generation of animators to stretch beyond the rectangular indoor screen, uh, beginning with your work at the 2007 Platform Animation Festival. Oh, yeah. That was the first time we had, uh, I think it was the first time any festival had an animated installation category. Uh, really got to hand it to Irene Kotlarts, who who was curating that event, going, oh, yeah, animation is going to break out of the screen. It's still going to be lovely in theaters but and on your phone and all that, but it's going to go many, many places. And I thought people still talk about platform. It was an amazing time. And I think 
Portland with its walkability and its kind of community and everything that was happening was just a very magic time. Can you describe some of those installations, some of the ones that really stood out? Uh, uh, everybody else was here. Joanna, you were here. You know, what stood out to you? I, I, I think of the really subtle one that was, it was like at Pacific Northwest College of Art, but it was also out in like shops and on corners and again in a old appliance building you know uh but i remember one it was like a they sold frames and in the window there was like a little frame and in it was a small less than eight by ten or whatever and there was a rear projector a tiny rear projector in it and it was uh projecting this woman's child that she i think controversially <laughs> uh took a photo of every day of her life since she was born. And she was like nine or 10, you know, and you could see the expression on her face go from obliviousness to kind of interest to real disdain. (laughs) (laughs) Resentment. Yeah, resentment. There you go, Martin. (laughs) Great. Well, I want to talk about the film a little bit. Rose, you talk about the history of animation, and you actually take it back not just a century or two, but millennia to the caves of Lascaux, France. Yeah, I, you know, I had an opportunity to to visit the sort of replica of of Lascaux, and um, it was really well done. They even like made the paintings in that same way of grinding up different. Um, rocks i get i i don't know and blowing them on but because of the wall surface was kind of curved and because you were going to be walking through you had a kind of illusion and then when you add like the lamps they use for these little um like you could almost hold it in the cup of your hand it was like a oil that would then flicker and it's like flickering is like to me the basis of animation the basis of that broken vision that our brains try so hard to put together into some kind of motion. So I feel like um, having experienced that partially in that replica cave and seeing like the animals drawn in different uh, phases, I guess, keyframe, I don't know what the, whatever term it is. It seems like the human's fascination with vision has been around for a really, really long time. The film really focuses on the community aspect of animation in Portland. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about collaboration. Joanna, your films are always laboratories of collaborative effort. That's true. I love collaborating with other directors. And Joan Gratz and I have made two collaborative films together. Um, It's really always exciting, always surprising. I always learn incredible things about techniques from the other filmmakers. I once did a film with Karen Aqua from Boston. We both were um, residents at a art colony in Spain and we thought we should make a film together. So we made a film about the environment that we were in and she only worked in Conti crayon pencils and I'd never worked that way. So to learn a whole new technique was quite exciting. We worked out, we worked like 200 pencils down to stubs about one inch long. And then we had to figure out how to get home like 2000 drawings from Spain. (laughs) Cause we didn't want to like, we had a rental car and we were driving through Spain and we didn't want to leave the 
the drawings anywhere. Like we'd never wanted to leave them in the car. If they were stolen, we would have been heartbroken. Jen and I made a film about prison called Pro and Con, and it was shown on the um, POV program on PBS of oh, yeah. documentaries. But yeah. it didn't, didn't show in Oregon for some reason. Do you remember why that was, Joan? Yeah, well, it was shown on a live from off center. And then we objected. They didn't want to show the whole program. I don't know why, probably because it was too interesting. And so then they... Not because of outstanding warrants for you or Joanna then. <laughs> they did compromise and they showed our piece, but that, that was it. And it was, I mean, generally that was such a good show and so contemporary. Well, and that just points up that, um, especially in your case, but in so many... Portlanders cases, and this includes ex-Portlander Bill Plimpton, there's a fascination with physical techniques. I mean, you've used not just digital effects, but uh, you've brought in ceramics, you've brought in multi-plane cameras, you've brought in stop motion and uh, backlighting and just Conte crayon, like you said. You know, I was really influenced early on by the great Canadian director, Norman McLaren, because the Portland Public Library had a great collection of his films, and my high school showed those films to me. So I was exposed to his work, you know, when I was 14. And I thought this would be incredible to make films just trying every different type of technique. So I've really challenged myself to do loads of different techniques. Although in the past, maybe 15 years, it's been mostly digital. So I've kind of moved away from that. And another thing that comes up in the film is how much the filmmakers are not just fans of animation or even film in particular, but artists, like all kinds of art. Uh, you mentioned, Joanna, that your influences include Miro, Kandinsky, Mondrian, Persian miniatures. You know... It's one of the most inspiring things for me is travel and going to museums around the world. You know, sometimes I'll take a trip just to see like three paintings. I once did a trip to Europe with a couple of friends just to th see like six Hieronymus Bosch paintings. And we would spend maybe three or four or five, six hours just looking at one painting. And we would engage, occasionally we would be able to engage with the curator of the museum because they wanted to know what we were doing, why we were just looking at one painting. It, you know, it's an interesting way to travel. And you don't that, feel rushed, like you have to see the whole museum, like people trying to see the Louvre in an hour. Uh -huh. Yeah. You've got to kind of choose, haven't you? When you go to a huge museum, you've got to be selective. Otherwise, your brain explodes after a couple of it's hours. It's so much more satisfying. Yeah, every time I go to the Tate Modern, I just end up sat in the Rothko room for about two hours, and then I leave. <laughs> nice. Was this the Bosch Bruegel Club? Yes, the Bosch and Bruegel Society. Still going, still going strong. We've been asked to authenticate paintings just from our <laughs> website. Oh, really? Really? Wow. Yes. You know, it's just, it's a fun thing to do. We We went on our first trip, and... At the last minute, like two hours before leaving, I made business cards for all of us, and they looked really authentic. So we would present these business cards to the museum, and out would come a curator or a director, and then we would engage, and then they would take us to see the big, 
you know, even when things were sort of closed up, like we went to certain places where rooms were closed, they would take us into the closed rooms to see mm -hmm. the Bruegel painting. So just make those business cards, everyone. It looks authentic. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. Joan, speaking of art, speaking of art appreciation, the film that you made, the award-winning film Mona Lisa Descending a Staircase, this was a real celebration of portraiture in the 20th century. You know, we had Joanna talking about Bosch and Bruegel. I mean, what about the 20th century, the modernists, really spoke to you as an animator? Um, yeah. So when I started the film, I was going to do the complete history of 20th century painting. And then as I got into it, I realized that I had to narrow it down. So I picked the human face, uh, then narrowed it further uh, to sort of artists that represented other schools, uh, but not trying to cover all of the other schools of painting. Um, that was how I ended up with that particular film. So it was my partly my background in art history and um, as an art major. Now I, you probably haven't seen this work yet, but now I've gone to working with cats in animation, special effects. So yeah, why would you want to go back to Picasso when you can go to Mona and Oscar, my particular cats? Conch, have you ever gone to Joan's studio? Yes, and uh, I was going to talk about the Western Warehouse a little bit because there's some lovely shots of the uh, Western Warehouse, the building in Northwest Portland on Upshur, where so many of the animators uh, featured in the film still have their studios. Well, yeah, it's a strong studio. She's got beautiful clay paintings of frames of the film of Mona Lisa descending a staircase. And it's oh. amazing to see an enormous wall of them. It's incredible. I always try to, to let Joan, bring, let me bring guests in to see those because they're amazing. Mm. Yeah, so when I started out, I did little replicas of the images I was going to use just to see if I would be able to do them in clay painting. So normally I'm just working on top of what I've done and I would have like an end image or maybe an image where I had to break to download film. But in this case, I have kind of complete sequences. And initially, when I thought about it, I was going to do replacements to the finished, totally accurate painting, but realized it was easier just to recreate it and then destroy it and move on. So as a result, I do have that wall of painting, which if it held up, I think... Some of them dated from like 81 when I started the project and they're just clay and they seem to have preserved their color. Well, Martin, what was it like uh, for you and Adrian to be touring the Western warehouse and see this hive of creativity behind this uh, rather unimposing brick wall? Well, you know, I love that building just architecturally. It's quite beautiful, I think. And uh, as I was cutting the film, so I'd taken some drone shots. Adrian got some really lovely shots as well. And um, 
Shell then found a, a black and white photograph from the 80s, from the early 80s, I think, which he sent me, which I really loved, which seemed to kind of add something, hopefully, to the film. And, uh, yeah, so it was great going in there. I mean, I think Jim's got a studio there. Shell's still got a space there, which is now a storage space, but I know he had a studio there. He also worked there with Jim. Zach's worked there because Zach has obviously collaborated a lot with, with Jim in his more recent work. So and, kind of, and Joanna. Yeah. yeah, no, and Joanna. Joanna and Joan are working in adjacent, pretty much adjacent studios. So, yeah, it was a fantastic space. Great. I loved it. And Adrian, you... Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. What's really nice is how unique each of their studios are in that space. Like, even though Joanna's and Joan's are next to each other, they feel like they could be in completely different places. Just you really feel that person in that room, like Joanna's studio full of all these amazing little bits on shelves and, and then Joan's with the big wall of all the stuff from Mona Lisa and Jim's studio, which is, you know, needs a tidy. <laughs> um, Shell talks in the film about the animation community and it didn't just socialize together, but certainly at the Western Warehouse and other places, they'd find themselves visiting each other's studios, helping out, contributing ideas and elements. Shell also talks about the importance of process, about not just enjoying the creative process, but about finding your way into the film, into the narrative, through the methods, the techniques, the artistry that you use? You know, I think um, one really important factor in my career was being a part of the animation collective early on. Um, and I think Rose, you were in it, and Joan was in it, and yep. Jim was in it. Uh, maybe Shell too, I don't remember. But um, we also had a terrific Cinematheque, the Northwest Film Center. So that was a big factor. And then when we, when we all moved into this building together, I think Joan was the person who found this. I don't remember exactly. But we all ended up following each other. Is that right, Joan? Did you find this yeah. building? No, Jim found it. I think the sculptor, Chris Burdett, was the first one to sign a contract. I was the second one. Jim was probably the last one, but he was the one who found the building. And it's, you know, it's incredible just having people doing what you're doing next door or on a different floor. And yeah, I would visit people's studios all the time. I always wanted to see what Joan was doing or Jim was doing or what Shell was doing. It's a, a huge factor in my career. I found that really fascinating, the way, you know, each had influenced another. And Shell, I think Shell arrived slightly later to Portland, and he describes seeing works by you guys and that having a profound effect on his on the development of his career. I think I showed his first film for the first time. Oh, really? Yeah, at the Oregon College of Arts and Crafts, I had a showing. I brought in artwork, animation artwork from around the world. It was a much more complicated show than... I had imagined, but it was wonderful to see artwork from all these famous filmmakers and then also from a lot of local filmmakers and then did a program of local films and, and Shell White showed his, I think, first film for the first time there. Great. Was that one of these, was that the direct animation film or an earlier one, do you think? I mean... I think it was uh, Photocopy Cha-Cha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Lovely. You're listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today we're talking about the Portland independent animation scene. 
I'm joined by documentarian Martin Cooper, along with cinematographer Adrian Story and acclaimed animators Rose Bond, Joan Gratz, and Joanna Priestley. Joanna, you mentioned the Animation Collective, uh, which was, well, sort of coordinated by Roger Kukas and Sharon Nimchik. Yes, it's been so long ago, I can't give you any details about it, Conch, but we had a big exhibit. We had an exhibit in a, in a, in a wonderful warehouse down by the waterfront. And I think it just excited so many people about animation. And I think Roger had brought some big zoetropes. So there were, there were things that kids could play with and films were shown. And it, you know, it generated a lot of excitement. It was just a collective thing. It had nothing to do with commerce or money. It was just for the joy in, of animation and love of animation. It's interesting, though. I wanted to sort of reflect why Portland had developed this extraordinary group of really talented independent animators so I wanted some kind of sense of how it all came to be and I guess Roger and Sharon to some extent were really the catalysts of for, for many of you to develop your work and, in, and inspired you into animation. That's you know? certainly true for me yeah Roger uh, you know I was a drawing and painting major and had no idea about animation and I really didn't like cartoons so once I saw, again, like Joanne, I saw some films from the National Film Board, particularly Caroline Leaf's film that was a drawn on glass. And uh, I just thought, wow, that's, I've never seen anything like that. That's like dr these drawings, they're paintings that move. I said, like, I want to learn how to do that. And there it was in Portland at the Northwest Film Center. Uh, the Art of Animation, Roger Kukas, evening class. Right. Like, that's what got me hooked. There was this film scene, larger film scene, that was really flying under the radar in the late 70s, early 80s with uh, filmmakers like um, Penny Allen and, uh, and and people working for her were Gus Van Sant and Eric Edwards and uh, uh, Campbell, Hank Pander. So, you know, you had L.A. and San Francisco and Seattle and Portland until just recently was really in the shadow of all of that. So you had people working away on very personal projects, but also with very cheap rents for so long. Right. That was helpful. Yeah, it has a really amazing music scene too, right, Portland? So, I mean, I think like a lot of places in England where <clears throat> all of those arts feed off every, if you live in a community where everyone around you is an artist or you're all of your, everyone you meet on a daily basis are artists, that helps to inspire you in so many different ways. That I think that's what's one of the things that I really loved about Portland. You still feel that there, that there's all these different kinds of artists working in all these different genres, not just animation, but film, music, poetry, all this stuff going on. And that obviously all feeds into each other. So I think that's, that's really interesting too. Something about Portland like that. I think somewhere like Seattle, obviously, is much more famous for people like Nirvana, but Portland feels like it's small enough you can all know each other. And now in the digital age, you you don't have to have a big studio to record yeah. in, for example. And yeah. comics artists, they're very collaborative. Although, you know, among different groups of artists, there are tribal tendencies. Animators tend to be a, a lot more introverted than live action filmmakers, but uh, more sociable than comics artists. 
Oh, and the crazier the idea, the more welcome it is among the members of the tribe. Right. One of the things that was fascinating for me, and I guess for Adrian too, although I'm older than Adrian, but we remember the MTV days. So, for instance, I saw Jim's Talking Heads, to name but one, that video when it was released. Uh, and I'd seen Talking Heads live in London at the time. And they, for me, they were such a kind of significant band. And so to finally meet the guy who'd made that that video and then a whole succession of videos on the back of that was was really fantastic. Don't you think, Adrian? Yeah, I remember it too. And uh, yeah, no, it's really amazing. And then and then to have the understand Jim was part of all of the rest of you know, right. all the rest of to discover everybody else's work. I think I've right. probably seen some of Shell's stuff actually. Like the early photocopy stuff, because he did some advertising stuff too, right? For like uh, Nike and people with that photocopy technique. So I think I'd maybe seen some of that too. But like it was a discovery to see everybody else's work. But like to realize, oh, actually, they all know each other and they were hanging out and drinking. Exactly. And the fact that Joanna worked on Tears for Fears, the Tears for Fears video. I worked on a couple of videos for Jim. And you know, that talking head video is so legendary now and i'm pretty sure jim just sent him suspicious circumstances that's right his, i think one he, of his i think his wife early I think, films uh, yeah. yeah and david byrne said oh i like this okay exactly just, that's easy as that i mean i'm sure there's a much longer story but it's incredible and then that led to so much for jim you know all the way to the um the michael jackson video that had a gigantic budget like a million dollars right, right. So yeah. it it's, was an incredible run for Jim. Amazing. Yeah. I worked on the Tears for Fears video that Jim directed, and I directed a segment. And that's when I got to work with Juan Miro's um, imagery. Um, but it had, had a really nice budget. You know, it was incredible. And now I think they just have zero budgets for videos. But people are still making music videos, loads of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joan, you were part of the embryonic stop motion industry that portland is now famous for yeah you joined the claymation studio before it was really a studio it was mainly will vinton and uh, bob gardner working out of a house in northwest portland yeah so i was kind of the generation after bob gardner so will had met barry bruce and don Merck, who were unemployed architects at that point in time and I had been in architecture school with those guys. So they started working for Will and did a couple shorts and then that claymation special. Yeah, I joined them for the last part of Rip Van Winkle. It was a, a film guaranteed to make you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and then I stayed at the studio for 10 years and then went off on my own to direct commercials in London. And then the studio represented me. But after that 10 years, I was then able to work on Mona Lisa Descending a Staircase. And I'm sure if I had stayed at the studio, I would have never had the time to do my own work. So that was a good move. Joan, wasn't Will Vinton also an architect initially? Yeah, yeah, So. Yeah. That's really incredible that all were all four of you in architecture school. Yeah. Different and you all abandoned it for animation. Huh. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, when you look at the bios, a 
a lot of different animators. Uh, their background is in architecture. Really? So, yeah, I think it's, uh, some people say it's because you're solving problems. That was what Barry used to say. I think it's because it involves some of the same skills you're building stuff. It's just the act of creation. But I did a lot of set design and I thought it was so much better because it doesn't have to hold up. Whereas, you know, there's consequences if you're an architect. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, Rose, one of the parts of the film deals with a project that you worked on. It's a version of an animation installation. And you uh, worked on it with the Oregon Symphony and uh, the uh, conductor at the time, Carlos Kalmar. And uh, what was yes. what was what was the project that was set to premiere, pretty much on the day that COVID shut down all cultural activities? Supposedly, it was going to be temporary, just for a few weeks. Yeah, that was. Uh... Yeah, uh, a real gut punch. Uh, the piece was Luciano Berrio's Sinfonia, and it was the Oregon Symphony premiere of that in Portland with a group Roomful of Teeth, which is an incredible uh, group that I've since gone on and done another, just finished another piece with them, a new work. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, essentially turning my work inside out and putting a bunch of projectors within the Arlene Schnitzer concert hall and just projecting on the walls. And if anybody has been in the Schnitzer, and there's a lot of local listeners here, you know that that is such a curly cue kind of Baroque kind of thing that you would, that building, it's like 1910 or 1915. And you would think there's just no way that you could do what we did. But it, it, it's again, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of experience I mean, some people are using the term immersive of, of just what happens when you expand the screen or you're dealing with uh, what, I don't know, Amy Dotson likes to call unbound cinema, cinema unbound, you know? And I, I do think as we move ahead, different organizations like even the symphony, which I consider... Uh, <laughs> you know, I always sort of considered symphonies just to be a little stuffy, and a lot of people, including myself, didn't have a background in classical music and that kind of thing. But operas for a long time, I think, have looked to media to enrich performance. Uh, dance is looking more to media. Mm -hmm. And certainly any kind of club <laughs> is using a lot of generative imagery to uh, get you on the dance floor. So lots of stuff happening. Really exciting area. I'm really happy to be working now. So animation is breaking out of the frame. I think so. I mean, it's also very nice within the frame. It's like, I don't know if somebody was saying, I love the frame. I don't want to do VR. You know, I love the frame. So it it's, doesn't have to be an either or. And that's the beauty of it. It's just more. I just hope they can resurrect that, that piece, Rose, and show it where yeah, it was intended. There's some conversations and with the new piece too it's you kind of have an evening package so great yeah great what i would love to see though is i'd love to see it back in portland um just exactly. because it's such a such a portland piece yeah yeah and and that particular piece 
Symphonia was made for that space. So yeah. the, it could go elsewhere, though. Sure, yeah. sure. Any fun stories about the filmmaking process? I mean, the whole process for me was, and I'm sure for Adrian too, was kind of inspiring, partly because it was my second film and I'm still kind of learning how to sort of try and interview people in a relaxed manner, which wasn't helped by the fact that on the morning of the interview with Joanna, I lost everything valuable to me by leaving it in the street as we were unloading Joan's car. So we were getting the tripod out and cameras and stuff. I put my bag down, which contained my laptop, a hard drive, which had got rushes on from a previous film, which I hadn't backed up, uh, by the way, my house keys to London, my passport, and also a print of all the questions that I'd carefully planned to ask Joanna. So, so then that freaked me out a lot, freaked Joanna out, of course, freaked Adrian out, and uh, we just carried on. We got we got through it. Oh my god, he was such a trooper. Day, he was such a trooper. <laughs> really, we all come into my studio, and I realize they're taking a long time setting up, and right. there's all this shuffling going on. And pretty soon, there's there's sort of frantic shuffling going on. And pretty soon, we've got to go back down to the car, and they mm -hmm. go back down to the car, and the backpack is not there. Mm -hmm. And they come back up, and it's just such you know, I just couldn't believe it. And mm -hmm. so we start the interview anyway, and I just, all I'm thinking about is, where's that backpack? It's like how- Fortunately, uh, fortunately, Martin went around, like we did go, I did go around to the businesses nearby and asked yeah. them, fortunately, Martin did a better job two days later. Yeah, I think it was, might've been me the next day, Joan said, look, go around all the local businesses just close by. And sure enough, the third one I went to, the first two just said, no, sorry, sorry. The third one was a nursery, small nursery. And the two guys were there. And um, I went in and said, look, uh, this sounds crazy, but I don't suppose you found a backpack anywhere. And the guy said, yeah, yeah, we were worried about that because it's got a passport in and a laptop. And they were just about reporting it to the police. So one of the guys was actually on the phone reporting that they'd found it. And so, yeah, it was almost worth losing it to have that um, experience of it being found. A moment of relief. It was kind of great. But by that time, I'd already started ordering a new passport. So I found the passport, but it had already been <laughs> totally cancelled. So it was a kind of, yeah, saga. But the process itself was brilliant. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, me and Martin, because we're good friends, because we worked on a number of projects together, we kind of have a sort of understanding of, with each other that I think is really important. There's so many things that we trust each other on. You know, he tells me the idea that he's going for, and I am on the same page, and so I know how to get what he's after. And also there's this sort of collaboration between the two of us in the sense that we don't really need to explain everything all the time because I know the sort of thing that Marty likes, and he knows what I'm good at doing. So we, there's a very much <clears throat> much the same way with uh, the animators collaborating with each other. It, there's quite a lot of sort of collaboration in that process. So, I mean, this was really interesting because it's the second long form film we've made together. And to feel that kind of uh, not needing to explain everything all the time was was, is, was really interesting. I mean, the interview setups, because we only had one light. It was kind of a minimal budget and <laughs> we only had one light. So the the way Adrian set up all of the interviews, I thought, was was just wonderful. They all look great. And everyone's commented on on that. So, Martin, you and Adrian have made um, that beautiful film, 
Traces of the Soul about a group of contemporary calligraphers. And now you've made a documentary about a group of contemporary independent animation filmmakers. Are you going to continue in that vein of, of mm. sort of group documentary? It's interesting, unusual format. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm working on one which Adrian shot, which we shot together up in Manchester about an Iranian artist. So that'll just feature him, but it'll be quite relatively short. The next one I was thinking of is maybe featuring three artists, each working in a different medium on different continents, each of whom is very interested in the environment and particularly the earth or land. So I found this uh, really great Ghanaian photographer and then a Japanese dancer and then a third person who I've yet to kind of nail down. That's one idea anyway. Yeah. I so love I like the idea making of films about people. art. Well, yeah, that's my thing, I guess. <laughs> Bravo. Thank you. So there's one more question I have that's only partially addressed in the film. What is it about animators and houseboats? <laughs> <laughs> well... There's two, two, two of you here that can get to grips with that, I guess. You know, I think it was just a matter of being friends and we all end up, you know, living <coughs> next to each other on a moorage, Jim and Joan and I. Um, and then our friend Marilyn was at the next moorage and it was really fun. I got in the habit of walking around with, with my cocktail because you could just stop in at anybody's house and say hello. And it was great fun. I miss it, actually. I really miss it. I miss being on the river. I love Martin and Adrian, how you made um, the city of Portland such an important part of, of the documentary. And I love how you really focused on nature as well. So you show one of the big attractions to being in this area is how beautiful nature is. And those drone shots are just gorgeous of the uh, Multnomah Channel and of the Willamette River. And it just reminds me how beautiful this area is and how much I love it. One of my friends said if she ever decided to sell her houseboat, she would want to use your documentary. <laughs> well, you've been listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Concer, and we've been talking today about the Portland independent animation scene and the documentary History, Mystery, and Odyssey by the filmmaking team of Martin Cooper and Adrian Story. Martin and Adrian, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. It was lovely to see everybody. Lovely to see you guys again. And we've been joined also by acclaimed animators Rose Bond, Joan Gratz, and Joanna Priestley. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Thanks, Conch. Thank, you. thank yep. you. And for those listeners who might be interested in finding out more about independent animation and Martin's film, where would they look? Oh, yeah. Where would they look? Cinema 21, August 20th, that's a Sunday at 4 p.m. in the big theater. We'll all be there. Going along with a short that I did as a compilation of eight very short animated films called The One Minute Mistake. So the mistakes are sometimes in taste, intent, yeah, life mistakes. It's a broad collection of mistakes. So Martin also was one of the one minute filmmakers. 
Yeah, and then it's going to be shown at the Ottawa International Film Festival in September. Well, thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. You can find an archived version of the show later today at kboo.fm slash words and pictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at words and picture. 